Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From Variety, celebrating 115 years covering the business of entertainment, this is the Award Circuit Podcast. When Ethan Hawke read James McBride's book, The Good Lord Bird, he knew the story would be perfect to adapt for the screen. I mean, it's such a, a big story. Nobody's ever made a movie about John Brown before. The Battle of Harper's Ferry has never been put on film. This kind of unbelievable moment in U.S. history. It's such a dramatic moment. You can't, I always felt like, wow, if Shakespeare was going to write a story about America, he'd pick John Brown. I'm Michael Schneider, and on this bonus edition of the Variety Awards Circuit Podcast, we talk to the Good Lord Bird stars Ethan Hawke and Joshua Caleb Johnson about their Showtime Limited series, showcasing the story of John Brown and the unique relationship between their characters. Later on, we chat with Phil Rosenthal about his Netflix series, Somebody Feed Phil, and how much it meant to viewers during the recent COVID-19 lockdown. It's all next on a bonus edition of Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. Stay close. Good Lord Bird is Ethan Hawke's first major TV project. From adapting the material via the book by James McBride, who also was an executive producer, to eventually starring in it, although at first he didn't think of the role for himself. Hawk plays John Brown, an abolitionist whom you might remember from history class but probably don't know much about. In the series, which comes with the disclaimer, all of this is true, most of it happened, Joshua Caleb Johnson plays Henry Shackelford, nicknamed Onion, a fictional enslaved boy who becomes a member of John Brown's eccentric family of abolitionist soldiers. But here's the catch. Early on, John Brown assumes that Onion is a girl, and Onion isn't about to correct him. From episode one, here's the moment Onion gets that nickname when he bites into a moldy old onion that John Brown had been saving as a good luck charm. I have a token for you, a little gift to show my appreciation and a gift for your freedom. And it's a welcome to the Lord's family. Of course, as you are a girl, we're going to have to get rid of you as soon as possible. That onion looked worse than dry mule shit. But being that he was white and I was his prisoner and hungry from the long ride, I bit into the foulness and it went down my gullet like a stone. That's father's good luck charm you just swallowed. I had that onion for 14 months and ne'er a bullet nor a knife scraped nor touched my flesh. I reckon the Lord must mean for you not to have it. I don't... Those who cling to worthless objects turn away from God. That's true. That's good. That's That's... That's good, boys. That's Proverbs. Even a godly man like myself has a pocket full of sins. As you can tell, the production from Blumhouse Television is extremely satirical, but also serves up a dramatic look at pre-Civil War America, starting with Bleeding Kansas, a time when the state was a battleground between pro- and anti-slavery forces. Eventually, the series leads to Brown's raid in 1859 on the U.S. Armory at Harper's Ferry, which we know helped start the Civil War. 
I recently spoke with both Hawk and Johnson about the Good Lord Bird, including how they feel about their characters, the growth of Onion along the way, and what John Brown's intentions ultimately were. I began by asking Joshua Caleb Johnson what the show has meant to the young actor's career. It means the world to me, just to have been able to have the opportunity to work on this project and work with all these various, very huge, very, very veteran actors. Um, this project, in a lot of ways, is my first breakthrough project. And I wouldn't have wanted it to be any other project. I mean, it's just so special to me and it always has a special place in my heart. And I'm so glad that people around the world feel the same way about it. And I'm so glad it was received in a very uh, special way, in the way that we wanted it to be. And so I just, I mean, words can't describe like kind of the emotion I have towards the project. And I'm just, I'm so glad that everybody thought of it as the same way. Yeah, yeah. And and the fact that it's had such long legs and it's lived on. Well, Ethan, you know, this this was also, this is a big sort of, you know, project for you, your first major TV project from adapting the material to serving as executive producer. I know originally you weren't planning on starring in it, but ultimately it became a real sort of labor of love for you. You know, take, take me back to, you know, looking back at that journey that you took in, in making this up until including casting Joshua in, in the project. Well, I mean, there's so many things I could say, but sometimes it's mysterious to me. You know, when we first started talking about this, it seemed too big of a dream to even manifest. You, you know, I mean, it's such a, a big story. Nobody's ever made a movie about John Brown before. The Battle of Harper's Ferry has never been put on film. This kind of unbelievable moment in U.S. history is such a dramatic moment. You can't I always felt like, wow, if Shakespeare was going to write a story about America. He picked John Brown. You know, I mean, it's a it's a heavy subject matter. And there's something about the magic of McBride's writing and the way that he found to tell it, which is it's John Brown is just an ancillary. I mean, he, he's kind of the event of the story, but he's not the main character telling the story through this fictional person of Henry Onion Shackelford made it revelatory and beautiful and made it, made it, allowed us to be able to tell it with wit and humor in a way that was so surprising for me. Uh, but I, I really have to say, it's so strange. Sometimes you have these dreams of something that can happen and every door is closed. And this one I would have thought would have been impossible. And we just found allies at every turn, you know, from Blumhouse to Showtime starting it. And then Joshua. I mean, one of the things that I used to say to Joshua that I think was an unfair burden to put on him. But, you know, the show would only go as far as he took us. You know, this is, is his show. And he, his insight and intelligence and discipline and talent was the show. And with, I remember I called my wife after Joshua's first audition and just said, you know, I, I think we got it. I mean, this is, you know, we, we, we had to make him jump through hoops. Um, but I knew from his first reading, I thought, oh, wow, I would like to watch this young man tell this story. Yeah. And Joshua, you're, you're, you're obviously same, same age as Onion going through sort of the, the coming of age tale. You're experiencing your own coming of age. Uh, you know, how did you sort of relate to Onion and, and uh, you know, c compare sort of, you know, your, your thoughts of, of who Onion is and, and sort of Onion's journey with, with maybe your own journey in self-discovery? 
I mean, there's a lot of parallels between me and Onion. Just like what you said, based on the fact that we were around the same age. And crazy thing enough is when I went to Virginia, when I first went there in end of July 2019, I actually literally just hit puberty. Like I had just hit puberty, like probably like a week later. And, you know, my skin, it was crazy because like Virginia is actually like very like humor, uh, I said humor humid and very moist and so like my pores were all open and my skin was breaking out and kind of all this these hormones coming out of my body that I had never felt before and I was getting taller and my body was changing growing a little hair on like you know my little sideburns and stuff <laughs> everything was just kind of coming together and that's kind of how onion is I mean everything just over time with repetition and just going on that long journey with John Brown everything started coming together he started growing up becoming a young man not even just physically, but mentally in the way he thinks he found a greater purpose in life outside of himself, which is what I believe I found with the good little bird. Yeah. Well, you're, you're also, you're, you're, you're a little younger perhaps than, than Ethan or myself. So you're a little closer to school age. Uh, you know, what, what did you, so what had you learned about Frederick, Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman, John Brown, uh, and, and, you know, how much did sort of, Good Lord Bird, you know, supplement your education in, in that time? Well, I was lucky enough to have an amazing history teacher. He taught us tons about Frederick Douglass, tons about Harriet Tubman, tons about John Brown. And I would say the show really solidified, well, I already knew this, but it really solidified the relationship between John Brown and Frederick Douglass. I knew they were friends, but I just didn't know like how good of friends they really were and how much love they had for each other, like genuinely, which was kind of like crazy when I, I talked to Ethan and David, we always talk about this. It's kind of how like their relationship is, is they almost have like a, this weird type of undying love for each other. That's kind of love hate because, you know, Frederick Douglass hates how John Brown acts sometimes, but he loves kind of the, the passion and, and, the how much how intense and how passionate John Brown is about the cause and freeing slaves and all those type of things. And so that just was probably the main thing that the show really taught me. But I was just, I mean, I'm super fortunate and lucky to have been able to know a lot about John Brown even beforehand. Yeah. Well, Ethan, you know, there hasn't been a lot of work done. There haven't been a lot of films about John Brown, not not a lot of uh, sort of works that, that sort of, you know, uh, depicted what went on at that time. What, what did you know about the story of John Brown, you know, going into this before maybe even reading the book, but then also what, what did the, the book teach you and what, what did you learn in, on the process of, of making this series? I knew so little before coming across McBride's book. Um, you know, the, the more I think about it, the more I wonder why young people aren't taught about this part of history, but the deeper I looked into it, I understood why they didn't teach it. I mean, this country is is scared of looking at its past this way. To really understand John Brown, you really need to look at, at human bondage and what was happening and to really look at, you know, I had a father that lived in Texas and a mother who was living in Vermont, like when I was in this kind of crisis age of, of, of learning. And when I first heard about John Brown in Texas, they would all talk about it just like as a lunatic. And, and in Vermont, they would teach him more delicately. Uh, 
or with more reverence. But you know, you don't see statues of John Brown. I mean, if there was a statue for John Brown for every statue of Robert E. Lee, this would be a different country. You know, it's it's who gets to tell our story, right? Not to quote Hamilton, but it's 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 a big part of why we felt it was so important to tell this story is that John Brown, you need to know about Harriet Tubman. You need to know about Frederick Douglass. You need to look at the DNA of the founding of this country to know what we're talking about now. Well, it, what what I also enjoy about the show is, you know, obviously sort of the, the tone. There's a unique satirical level to it. Um, you know, there, there, there was... It's a real fine line that that you sort of you know you have to to walk right in, in telling a historical story, but also telling it from from sort of like this 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 interesting sort of unique tone that you guys have. You also needed to have the right players to do that. David Diggs, obviously amazing. Joshua, you came into this sort of you know again as, as sort of a newcomer, and and there, this was a lot, Ethan, that you had to ask of Joshua. So, sort of talk about what you were looking for in the tone and in sort of and who you cast to, to be a part of this, to pull that off? Well, it's a great question because, I mean, I think that was the most reoccurring conversation about 18,000 times a day was this razor's edge that we were walking. If it was too funny, it wouldn't be emotional. You know, we're not making blazing saddles. And if it was too rigorous and uh, and if it lost its sense of humor, then it would be something that we've seen before or or it wouldn't open your heart in the way that McBride's book did. It was this challenge. You know, it's not it's not Joshua's heard me say this, but it's it's not John Brown is taught by your high school librarian. It's as it's as if Red Fox was telling you the story or Richard Pryor, Chris Rock. I mean, it was the unique thing that McBride did is telling it through this 14 year old boy who's in a dress. I mean, he's immediately a, a, a narrator that it, it, it's, it's uh, you know, an uncommon vantage point, so to say. And, and, and it allowed for it to have a kind of Mark Twain, big fish tail aspect to it where it's all seen through a point of view. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and one of my my favorite sort of recurring sort of elements of the show is is how the white people never they, they always just assume that Onion is a girl. They never see him for who he is. They they just don't see him. Whereas, you know, everyone black on the show immediately knows like you're in a dress. I know who you are, Onion. Well, that's I mean, it's I mean, Joshua, you should speak to that, but it's so McBride is clearly getting at how we don't really look at each other. Yeah. We don't see one another. I mean, Joshua, you had to play all that. I mean, you already said it though, Ethan, literally. It's, it just goes to show, especially in that time, even still a lot of times today, people don't look at what you truly have to offer on the inside. They just look at outside appearances. And back then they just, they saw to them it was another slave, another slave in a dress. So they assumed it was a girl. They didn't think anything else of it. It wasn't like, well, let me actually get to, you know, get to know who he is. And maybe it's a boy, maybe it's a girl. We don't really care. Like how John Brown was, especially at the end. He didn't care if I was a boy or a girl. He just cared about me as a person and how I was happy and that I was safe. And that's how it, it should be nowadays. But it just really, it really goes to show that people still, to this day, 
always want to judge you based off based off outside differences and not judge you based off of a lot of inner similarities and things that we all have in common together, which is we're all people, we're all humans and we should be treated as so. Um, yeah. And, and, and it, it's, it's so fascinating to see, you know, again, I, Joshua, we, we, we talked a little bit about the, the satirical nature of it. Ethan mentioned that, but how about for you, you know, sort of coming in and sort of the same thing, this was a, a heavy lift to sort of know when to sort of, you know, go for it and, and when to be serious. What was that like for you and sort of learning that process of that razor's edge? As far as learning the process of the razor's edge, it was, I wouldn't say difficult for me, but I'm like a very goofy person at heart. Like all the time, I'm very, you know, chipper, happy, always vibrant, filled with energy. Um, and so Ethan really taught me when we we're on set, he's like, it's really good to be goofy, everything like that, be yourself. But there's certain times where if you know, like say, there's times where other actors had scenes and I would be a little too chipper. And he'd be like, they have to like, you have to tone it down a little bit. They have to focus. It's a different type of mindset. And I never really understood that until I had a scene one day and someone else was like being very vibe, like really like life filled around me and I couldn't focus. And it was one of those scenes that was like super important. And it was a very emotional scene. I couldn't get my head straight and I had to like walk away, go by myself and kind of come to myself for a second, relax and zone out and kind of be with myself in a way. And so balancing the satire but also the seriousness of of, of subject like slavery a very dark subject and i think i mean the beauty of james mcbride's writing the beauty of the whole show which is allowing that humor and that satire to kind of lighten the subject as slavery but it's not losing the emotion at the same time yeah yeah it, it just, you know sorry but one of the fun things we did when i first met joshua i asked him to uh, memorize a passage from Huck Finn, because Twain's language is so similar to McBride's in a, in a different way, but but it was very difficult. I knew that doing that Huck Finn speech would be extremely difficult, and if he could carry that weight, then everything that we were going to do would actually be easy. But but getting into the, I don't think Joshua does it so effortlessly that people don't really understand how difficult it is to get yourself into that period mindset, that period language. You know, a lot of young actors have a lot of talent, but they can't shed themselves of the 2020 mannerisms. They can't shed themselves. You, you know, Joshua is extremely funny and his, his humor and intellect could, could engage in this different setting. And that's very rare. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure Joshua, you, you thought a lot about, you know, Onion ultimately, how Onion feels about John Brown and, and, you know, sort of it's, it's a complicated relationship. Uh, in the end, it does seem like, you know, he, he comes to really love John Brown, but, but what's sort of your feeling on that, that relationship? That relationship is a very, it's a time is really what I have to say about that. It took time. I mean, Onion, in the beginning was only thinking about himself and thinking about how he could survive and thinking about what can be better for him and what could help him in life. And as the show progressed and as Onion and John Brown progressed together and actually, I mean, started to get to know each other and not just, you know, Onion does everything for John Brown and John Brown orders Onion around. Actually, when they got to know each other and actually broke down their relationship and said, look, like we're equals or partners, whatever you do, I'll do, I'll ride with you till the end. And that's when Onion found 
his purpose in life and a, a bigger purpose to serve. And he awakened, I mean, Onion has so many awakenings in this show. Mm-hmm. True. I mean, spiritual awakenings, um, sexual awakenings, becoming a man, um, growing up, um, becoming more mature. It's just political awakening. Exactly. John Brown and Onion's relationship is almost is lived like father and son. And I feel like Onion was more of a son to John Brown than most of his sons, honestly, yeah. in my opinion. But I feel like their relationship is more so of a father son than any of his sons. And what we discovered playing it is put simply the show, it's this radical, crazy time period, but at its essence, it was a love story between these two men of where they both stop seeing each other. He's not this like token person that John Brown's going to save. He's onion. He's a person. And I'm not this crazy lunatic white guy. I'm John. And, and we, the, journey of the show is is their friendship and their deepening love and respect for each other. Ethan, nonetheless, John Brown's intense. And, and you know, t- talk a little bit about sort of digging in and finding that level of intensity. And <laughs> is that physically hard to pull off as well to sort of, you know, get some of those speeches out? And, and you know, when when John Brown is extra intense, what what is that? What does that feel like? It's the first time in my life, you know, I turned, you know, Joshua has, you know, he hit puberty and I hit 50. You know, I mean, it, it was the first time I, I knew what having a heart attack might feel like. <laughs> it was 107 and I'm carrying like seven rifles and three pistols and dressed in wool and screaming my full head off. Uh, you know, when society is insane, it takes a bit of insanity for it to see itself. For him, you know, how I felt is to be a person who is going to shatter an insane element of society. He had he would seem insane to those who are insane. You, you understand what I mean? It, like you can't you, you can't shatter the in, the criminal institution of human bondage gently. I viewed him as a radical, but I also had the luxury of because of the point of view of the show, I was not playing John Brown as he was. I was playing him as Onion perceived him, you know? Onion yeah. didn't know or wasn't privy to, until we get into the later episodes where their friendship deepens and Onion really does know him. The first couple hours of the show, I'm this entity to, to Onion. You know, I'm, I'm just this animal, you know, uh, this crazed white dude. Um, and so that gave me a lot of permission to be playful and to try to match you know, as you called that tone that McBride was challenging us to match. You know, we what we we had to do in cinema what he did liter- from a literary angle, uh, but we had to match him. Yeah. What would you say was maybe the, the the most difficult thing to sort of nut to crack in in making this? Uh, in sort of maybe it was a choice, or maybe it was just shooting in 107 degree weather in Virginia. But what what would you say was sort of like that 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 moment that you like that eureka moment perhaps in, in figuring out how to pull this off? Truthfully, there were so many. Um, I, I I think that this was a learning experience for both Joshua and I. And on one level, the most obvious challenge is how to have humor in these really dark times. 
that we were talking about. That was challenging every day is to try to find that, that tone. It was challenging the heat and riding horses. It was challenging whenever you're talking about race in America, it's challenging. You get big groups of people together of various different backgrounds, of various different complexions, um, various degrees of hurt, knowledge, intelligence, anger, fear, guilt, shame. Uh, all these emotions are in the room. When you have to ask people to, uh, to play characters who are forced to live in a slave pen, um, that's very hard. We, Joshua and I, James, everybody involved in this believe in the power of storytelling, but there were aspects, you know, we had to ask a young kid to sit in a cage with the for sale sign on the cage. I mean, that's, that's a eureka moment. Mm -hmm. We ask you about what the value of storytelling is. How is John Brown, not just another boring white Christian savior figure in the history of white people stealing the narrative? You know, well, you have to get deep inside that story and realize that for me, if I had to say one thing, it was understanding John Brown as a Christian and to really fundamentally see that John Brown wasn't there to save black America. That was the result of his action. As a person of God, as a child of God, as he saw himself, he was there to save the white community. They were living in sin. And, you know, if what really matters is our relationship with the divine, then it was John Brown's privilege, his brothers and sisters, his children that were living in sin, and he needed to save them. And he needed to be on the right side of his maker, you know? And so it was really clear for him. And once I kind of saw it from that point of view, the character opened up for me and I felt liberated from any of the kind of labels that, you know, other stories might fall prey to. And it seemed like uh, you know, having James McBride involved in the project uh, as an executive producer helped. He, he, you know, as the source material, he was someone you could you, lean on sort of, you know, what did you, what were your intentions here? Uh, and, and Gosh, don't you remember like McBride came down for our 4th of July party? It was yeah. really interesting. You know, we were there celebrating the 4th of July together, you know, what? We were going to reenact Frederick Douglass's famous Fourth of July speech. We were there in Virginia, in the heart of the South, you know. I mean, and McBride, he's, he's a very graceful person. He's very wise. He's very well educated. Um, he's deliberate and purposeful person. And I always felt, didn't you feel, Josh, when we had his blessing, I knew we were okay. Yeah, like, didn't you feel that way? No, for sure. And it was one of those... Like he was always there. It wasn't like he was there for every single episode. At least he came one time and always kind of made sure everybody was okay, made sure that we all understood um, the task at hand. And it was just kind of, like you said, someone to lean on. Like if there's any ever, like any questions I had about Onion or there were things about the book where I was like, oh, I wonder about this. I would always go to James and ask and he'd be like, well, this is what I intended behind this and that. And therefore, so it was just, I mean, it was great to have the writer, the author of the book there with us to really give us a lot of the insight, just kind of more background behind this book. Even though I already had read the book, he still filled in the blanks that I had just questions about his writing and what was intended for it.
Yeah, but he yeah. was so humble. Like he never, he, I remember him saying to you once, look, I never had to wear a dress. You got to make this come alive. This is not like, I, I dreamed it up, but it's different when it becomes drama, you know, when it it's different. And he knew that and he was humble about that and, and gave us confidence to use our own creativity. Yeah. Cause I was going to say, Joshua, I mean, in, in learning who onion is, I mean, onions, onions, not completely innocent either. Uh, onions got his own sort of agenda motives. And, and so that's, that must've been fun to play as well. Kind of figuring out, you know, what's, what's, what's onions deal in all of this. Onion, like I kind of said, was a very selfish character in the beginning. And that, that was just that his internal purpose was to survive and get away from everybody and go by himself just where he can survive, eat, sleep, have his own house. And even in, in the beginning, he said multiple times that he'd rather go back to Dutch Henry than be with John Brown because it was just constant food, constant um, water work. He had, his, he had his paw with him. But once Onion started to actually open his eyes and open his heart and get to know John Brown and actually start to you know become a young man, Onion realized that it's not all about himself and so his motives turned from selfish ones to motives as to free all his people and even after john brown he became he became the john brown after john brown was gone in a sense he became a john brown in his own right Mm -hmm. and not every single john brown has to be you know a radical like frederick Douglass. he was a john brown in his own right just with a pen and paper he wasn't guns blazing you know walking in the top of his ferry and blowing people's heads off. But his his fight was on a pen and paper. Like how in real life, my fight is, I don't go on the streets and I protest and everything, but I use social media to my advantage on Instagram and Twitter and various different apps. It's my advantage to advocate for Black Lives Matter like I do. And so- With your art. It's, I mean, it's just, it's still the same thing, but it's just different ways. And so- I feel like Onion became the John Brown after John Brown was gone and John Brown really instilled instilled that factor into Onion about how everyone's lives matter. It's not just about your it's not just about you. You're you're here for a greater purpose. God put you on this earth for a greater purpose and it's time for you to become a young man and fulfill it. And that's why the last scene is probably one of my favorite scenes that me and Ethan did together because it really it really John Brown really consoled young onion and was like, look, no matter what, I love you. No matter if you're a boy or girl, um, you know, brown, purple, red, yellow, orange, it doesn't matter. You'll always be like my child and whatever you do in life, I support you hundred percent. And so that's kind of the change in motives for onion throughout the whole kind of show. All right, let's do mutual admiration club time. Joshua, I want you to tell me about something you saw Ethan do uh, in the production that like wowed you, impressed you. And then Ethan, I'm going to ask you to, to return the, uh, the compliments. So Joshua, what sort of stood out in, in watching the one and only Ethan Hawke do his thing? I mean, on top of his brilliant acting and his brilliant work and just the way he was always so professional when he came to set and was no ego at all. I mean, one of the most humblest people I've ever met, one of the most genuine people I ever met. I could have done this. He was in Virginia with a wool vest on, a wool coat, about seven different layers of clothes on, a gun belt, a rifle on his back, and always a Bible in his front pocket. 
in like Anatolian degree, Virginia, humid, moist weather, walking around for hours every single day, riding horses. I could have never done that. <laughs> I would have eaten, broken, passed out. I don't know how they did it, but I commend them fully for that because that's, I would have had a very, a very, very hard time doing that. Yeah, that sounds terrible. <laughs> Ethan, what you what impressed you about Joshua? You know, there's so many ways I could answer that question. Uh, um, his there was, I think, a lot of people by the later episodes, an audience is so in touch and connected to who Onion is, they don't even think of Joshua anymore of the actor. And the way that he plays the scenes in Harper's Ferry, the whole last couple episodes, he's so inside the skin of that character and it's so alive and it's so musical and funny and passionate and emotional and effortless. And to watch a young actor go from working really hard to emotional scenes were no longer work for him, it, it, to watch it become play, even difficult scenes. He was at play, he was able to play. To watch the growth of an actor that way, uh, as a student of acting, as a former child actor, to watch him grow into a man in his work. Uh, really, I felt, you know, getting to play the last scene of the movie, you know, Joshua said that, you know, John Brown consoled him, but Onion's the only person there consoling him. You know, this is this is the John Brown's investment in the future of America. I mean, that's that is the real John Wayne is 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 Joshua riding off that horse at the end. You know, the real Western, a real Western deals with the DNA of this country and the ways in which it was flawed in its beginning. You know, uh, so watching him grow up, that was the thing. Watching him grow up as as him, I, mean, I could cite all these things. You know, the one thing you, I knew he was talented when he auditioned. What I didn't know is he was going to show up on time every day. I didn't know he was going to come in on Sunday and rehearse with me. Didn't know that he'd be able to handle script changes last minute. Um, you know, there's so many ways, but the the biggest was watching his evolution. Hopefully, we'll get you two in another project together one of these days. Uh. <laughs> be amazing. Yeah, no, absolutely. We'll, we'll look forward to some sort of uh, new take with the two of you because uh, it's so much fun to see the, 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 just the chemistry and the back and forth between the two of you throughout uh, Good Lord Bird. Uh, well, thank you, both of you, so much for taking the moment to talk a little more about Good Lord Bird. I'm so happy to see sort of the, uh, you know, the long tail of this project and that it's still resonating with, with folks now. So congratulations to the two well, of you. Thank, thank you. That's Ethan Hawke and Joshua Caleb Johnson of Showtime's The Good Lord Bird. And after the break, Phil Rosenthal on exploring the world through food, even in your own backyard. From Los Angeles, this is Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? 
they're also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hey, we're back. It's the Award Circuit Podcast. I'm Michael Schneider. Netflix recently gave Phil Rosenthal a fifth season order for Somebody Feed Phil, and with the world slowly opening up again, it couldn't come at a better time. The Everybody Loves Raymond co-creator has helped countless viewers explore the world and travel vicariously through his series, particularly during these pandemic times. And his cheerful mood as he explores the world is also infectious. I recently spoke to Phil about the recent return to comfort, like the current hot chicken craze. We also compared our COVID weight gains... And we talked about his most recent season, including his visit to a state I adore, Hawaii. I began by asking him how he's fared during this past year. I'm one of the lucky, lucky people. I have a nice house. I have a family. Uh, Nobody got deathly ill. My dad is visiting me. He's 95. Great. Yeah. And he's got the vax? Yeah, we're all vaxxed. We're all good. That's great. So, yep, we're all vaxxed up. So, so we can go eat. Exactly. Slowly, I can meet you at the farmers market again. I yeah. I uh, we we for the first time last weekend we met up a uh, a fellow couple who have also been vaxxed and we had our first actual like sit down. We were outdoors still, but sit down actual like meal at a restaurant. It yeah. was so great. I actually ate inside at Lowry's. Yeah. It's my dad's favorite restaurant. You know why? Why? It's soft. It's soft. <laughs> meat is soft it's softer than a steak that's why he loves it loves the, the potatoes are soft the cream spinach is soft yeah. the popovers are soft I have to say uh, as I get older I appreciate it it's the yeah. ultimate comfort food that's yeah, yeah. And, and I've come around a lot of these retro places that have been around forever like I really appreciate them so much more now. absolutely Absolutely. There's a kind of, this is a trend I'm seeing is a, a kind of return to comfort, just comfort, you know, yeah. like health be damned. <laughs> look, at the, look at the fried chicken craze right now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Literally every other day, another fried chicken. I've got to try all of them. I've, I, and this is why I gained the COVID-19 as they call it. Cause that's I, funny. I, that's true that they said the average weight gain has been about 20 pounds. That's hilarious. The COVID-19. COVID-19. Cause I've been, been trying every single one of these new spicy chicken sandwiches and I'm up at least eight pounds. I, I gain more weight at home than doing a food and travel. That's funny because one of the things when my wife and I watch your show, she still every time will bring up, how is Phil so thin? It's That's the number one question after, after can I carry your uh, bags is, uh, <laughs> is how does that work? So I'll tell, I'll tell you, here's the secret. You know how they make a dog food commercial? Mm-hmm. They don't feed the dog until the commercial. So I'm the dog. <laughs> I'm not eating until you see that scene. Yeah. And yes, it looks like I'm a pig because it's nonstop. But that's a week's worth of filming condensed into, you know, less than an hour. And so it looks like I also, I don't finish anything. I take a bite or two and then I have the crew looking at me like this. Uh, And so I share it with them. 
I don't know how much I can share post COVID anymore if we continue, but uh, uh, I sure will try. Maybe I'll, I'll try to be a little more sanitary, eat with knife and fork instead of just grabbing everything and shoving it into my face. I hope not. That, that's one of my favorite things about your show is a, when you just grab something and take you like yeah. your, your, your big Giant bite. Yeah. And, and then also when you share with the, the crew, with your brother and, and the crew, like I love seeing that. I have to figure if we're all vaccinated, right? And we're not going to catch COVID from each other. Then it's normal. Here, eat from me. I'll bite from you. You bite from me. I can hug people. I can kiss people. I think. I think. I think we're going to go back to that, aren't we? I mean, if we're all vaccinated, why not? I Until we so. hear that the vaccines didn't take. <laughs> and then we all need another dose, which yeah. who knows? But at least for now, there there is yeah. this sort of grace period. Um, well, I'm sure you've heard also from a lot of people who have had to live like you know, no one's been able to travel. So a, a lot of like living vicariously through watching old episodes of, yes. of your show in order yes. to sort of vicariously travel. Uh, that's been sort of a nice like resource to have over the past year. Uh, it's amazing how many more people watch the show. I, uh, it led me to believe that Netflix actually started COVID. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Sarandos. It's very good for business. I mean, because people have written to me and told me, you know, this is the only way they can travel. Some of them are sad, you know, when they watch. And I want to tell them, don't be sad because, look, it's ending. And I knew it was going to end. We all knew it was going to end. We just couldn't see past the week, you know? And I would tell them, watch it the way you always watch it. Hey, that place looks great. Let's plan a trip. I'm planning trips, are you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. that's that's what, and it makes you appreciate everything so much more to have it taken away, right? I, my joke is that we're gonna be so grateful and so happy that the world's been returned to us. And that feeling, that gratitude is gonna last two weeks. And then <laughs> we'll be back to complaining. I think you're right. I, I'm hoping at, at the very least, because I've been thinking a lot about how, why didn't I go to more restaurants? Why didn't yes. I you know, go to more concerts? Why didn't I just yes. do more, go out more? And now you will. I hope so. I think you will. I think, I think we realize, we don't realize, you know, it's like that, the message of the, of the play, Our Town. You know, Thornton Wilder's Our Town. Life is, is so beautiful, we don't realize it as it's happening. It's not until you, you miss it that you, right, that you realize all the stuff in it and all yeah. the, just the mundane little things that we take for granted every day. Yeah. People ask me, where's the first place you want to go when this is over? And I say, my diner, my diner down the street. I just want this return to normal where I can sit in the diner with my friends. I have to say I'm one of those people who treasures it at the moment, at the time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I love it as it's happening. I can't say I miss it more now than because I really do appreciate. I'm old enough to appreciate everything. Yeah, no, and, the, yeah. I was going to say one of the saddest things was you know this past year doing a lot of like carry out, a lot of deliver, a lot of pickup. You know, and you go yes. to these restaurants and you just see like you know the the chairs are stacked on the tables oh. or they've turned their dining rooms into storage rooms, yeah. and it's just sad. It's, it's and, like, and some of them won't come back because they can't because yeah. the landlords, you know, sold it out from under them during COVID. That's terrible. Yeah. 
I wish the landlords would be a little more, oh, what's the word? Human? Yeah. <laughs> and, and realize that this is the lifeblood of the community. Is this bar or restaurant or coffee shop or diner? This is where life happens. This is where we socialize. This is where events and big things in our lives, you know, transpire where I would meet you for lunch. It's life. Yeah. I don't want to live in a world without that. Yeah. And, and as someone who has uh, invested in restaurants over the years, it must be heartbreaking for you to see sort of what's what's happened. And, and you know, do you are, are you optimistic that we can sort of return to, uh, you know, rest yes. of restaurant business like before? Yes. Just as I'm optimistic that the pandemic will end. However, there have been casualties. Mm-hmm. People have died. Businesses have died. And so we mourn for those. But on the whole, I am optimistic that, you know, life goes on and that, you know, if you lost your business, that you're still young and hearty enough to make it another go of it, right? Yeah. And that the talent and the, the, the spirit of these people is not uh, squashed, even if they're, you know, that storefront is. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's my, my hope is that, you know, people are going to want to return to, uh, you know, eat well. And, and they, they want to go to restaurants. They want to experience yeah. that again. There's going to be uh, an audience, a, con- a consumer base for that, my, hopefully. I always think that, tr- uh, uh, you know, cuisine is, is, is traveling. And that you could even travel, even during COVID, by looking at your phone and looking up a menu of uh, maybe an ethnic restaurant that you never tried before. You know, look up Peruvian food. Just look at the menu. And suddenly you find things that you might be interested in. You're not afraid. People are afraid. Oh, what if I'm wasting my money and I don't like it? Yeah, so the journey is its own reward, right? The trying of it is is its own reward. And you traveled for the night. Yeah. yeah. And we can do that. And that's what restaurants, let's say the rest of the world doesn't open up as fast as the United States, right? There's certain places we can't go for, for a while. Well, a lot of their cuisine is here. And you can travel by going to the restaurant. And you can support your local places yeah. and travel at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. That's why I love living in Los Angeles, to be oh honest. Oh, my God. We are so lucky. I say it every day. Look at what we have. I had Courage Bagels this morning. I was like, these geniuses. Have you had those yet? No. No. Have you read about it? So maybe what, what, refresh my memory. Okay. So this is on Virgil Avenue in uh, Los Feliz. Okay. Silver Lake area. And and so this is uh, two young people who kind of invented the better bagel. And the New York Times, the New York Times said the best bagels in the United States are now in California. And their number one was Courage. I did hear about this, yeah. And all I did was post, repost their Twitter headline. Mm -hmm. And the hate I got from New York (laughs) from my own people. I'm just stating, I'm just reporting that don't don't shoot the messenger. I was just saying. Look, this is interesting, right? Now, the people that hate 
They didn't even try the bagel yet. Taste it. I want you, Michael, I want you to taste it. Tell me I'm wrong. This is a very good bagel. They, right. It's like a reinvention. I'm gonna have to hit there. I just, just like yeah. uh, you know, I finally had uh, speaking of the, the, the you know fried chicken, the the daybird chicken also on Virgil. So go go like nine a.m. The the wait isn't that long then. You know they line up early, early before it opens like seven. Then you get a big line then, but then around nine it shrinks the line. I'm giving you some insider tips. <laughs> there you go. I like it. Um, so hey, I wanted to talk to you about Hawaii. Because I don't know if you know this, but I, I grew up there. I went to high school in Hawaii. So no, they had Schneiders in Hawaii. That's amazing. I totally looked the part, right? That's amazing. <laughs> so I had a lot of fun watching that episode in particular because you know, you you turned me on to new places that I hadn't heard of. Now, granted, I don't. I'm you know I'm back every two years, so I I, I don't know the place like I used to. It also depends what island you're on, right? We hit two islands: the big one and and uh, Oahu. And Oahu, yeah. And, Where did you grow up? On Oahu, so Honolulu. In Honolulu, yeah. Wow. And so that there, there's a renaissance there, right? That a lot of young people are opening places. You can get a you can get a great meal pretty much anywhere on Earth, but it's really fun in Hawaii. Not only do you have the traditional Hawaiian food, but then you have these kids. I call them kids because they could be my kids. Uh, innovating and doing, you know, there's like a Brooklynification of the world, even in Honolulu. Yeah, yeah. No, it's funny seeing you on one of those rented bikes in Kaka'ako, which is like the, the warehouse neighborhood, which is something I had done exactly the year before on yes. one of those bikes, right? Yes. Those murals. And my wife is like, hey, that's that's what you did. Like, well, yeah, Phil, Phil knows what's going on. <laughs> did you go out with the big Hawaiian guys doing the... No, I did not do that, unfortunately. But... Paddleboarding? Oh, my God. The, what, what do we call it? Paddle... What are those boats called? Outrigger. Yeah, outrigger canoes. Yeah. That's right. I'm an outrigger now. <laughs> um, but but I also like that you uh you found a, a decent poke place and, and uh, oh. you're you're turning around on poke because you're Did right. Did you know that place, Ahi Assassins? No, I hadn't heard about that place, but so so unfortunately that that shop that I went to, COVID took that out, but they reopened elsewhere. That's cool. So that's great. But yeah, that's that's like I mean, sushi grade, as it should be, by the way. Yeah. I was thinking the United States, when I look at the, the chain pokey places, and I've, and I've tasted it, I'm like, you know, if this fish was good, wouldn't right. it be sushi? Yeah, yeah. And but then they, they load, the problem is, they, and then they load all that stuff on to hide the fish flavor. And then you're like, well, what's the point then? But yeah, you go to Hawaii, you get like the fresh fish, and you don't need to put much on it. And Spectacular. Yeah. And just the right seasoning, like a sushi chef would do. Yeah. It just cut, you know, in a poke. Yeah. But Fantastic. Fantastic. Did you know Uncle Clay? So, no, but now like, I, I hope he's still able to hug people, but I, I don't know if uh, <laughs> post-COVID. He's, he's, he's like the, uh, the, the Peter Roth of the uh, shave ice world, I guess. Yeah. He's unbelievable. Unbelievable. <laughs> He made me look like the Grinch, this guy. <laughs> so yeah, that 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 was fun. I always love when then you bring the different people together to have a meal who you've met along the way. Uh, the Big Island stuff was fantastic too. Just beautiful Thanks. that that uh, that that uh, ranch that you went oh to. Oh my God, up in the up in the clouds. Yeah, it was freezing up there. Yeah, yeah. Amazing how cold it can get up in the mountains there. 
But boy, is that spectacular. Yeah, it's funny because when your dad asks about skiing, you know, there are places on the Big Island where you can actually ski. So he was not not wrong. They get snow camp mountains there. Yeah. 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 No, the uh, the zip lining was enough for me. Yeah. That looked awesome. <laughs> um, but even like, you know, I, I obviously love when you go globally, but the domestic episodes are fun too. San Francisco also, you know, we all go to San Francisco frequently, but it's it's always so nice to see, again, places that I hadn't known before and, and to just see you experience it. And then to get that that front row Thomas Keller tour. That's crazy. How lucky. I mean, I pinch myself. But, you know, that again, you can travel in your own town, right? There's yeah. so many great things that we don't even know are here right next to us. Yeah. So that, so that's the, that's the point. Uh, I don't know what the future holds, but uh, I like doing uh, American cities because there's so, we have wonderful places here. We forget. Yeah. yeah. No, there's, there's so much to tackle. Um, did you get stir crazy over the past year? Uh, what was what was it like to sort of put I'm all this on pause? There are people who really suffered. Yeah, I have a nice uh, place to live, and my family's healthy. And you know, we we kept the backyard kind of open and loose the whole time. You know, maybe there was a week or two where there was really you know strict. Hey, don't see anybody, and so we listened to that. And other than that, we kept our distance, and we we had meals outside. That's cool. And, you know, is it exactly the same? No. Am I still able to see you and eat? Yes. Yes. If I, if I never did another Zoom again, though, that would be okay. I'd much rather be doing this over a drink or coffee, at least, or pastry yeah. of some kind. But uh, it's better than nothing. I mean, imagine if we were locked away without this technology. I know. If this was 10 years ago. Right. It would have been a very... What would we do? Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah. So we're, we're happy th that this happened when it did, that there was a cure in record time, a vaccine. Meaning. Yeah. So we, we live in, the, it's the, as always, the best of times and the worst of times. Yeah. Um, how has your wife uh, handled having you at home so much? She now would have a different answer. <laughs> She's uh she's uh you know a pretty good partner to have in this because she is unflaggingly cheery and fun and great and uh you know we 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 actually we count our blessings every day. And our kids, you know, Lily, our daughter is 23, she was about to graduate, right, when COVID hit. And there was like a month left of school. She moved right back in and she hasn't left. So to us. We get our daughter free year with our daughter, right? And our son lives a mile away with his girlfriend, and that was our little pod. And so we got, you know, how many 20-somethings really want to spend a lot of time with their parents? Not too many, but here they had to. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. And I would, you know, oh, isn't it terrible? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you're right in that, in, in you know, you know, in, in some ways it was a gift. You know, I've got a 16 year old and 11 year old. And for too many years, I was never at home for dinner because I'm, I'm working. Right. This past year, we had dinner around the table like you're supposed to. And and the first couple of days, my kids were like, 
why aren't we eating in front of the TV? Like, why are we all yeah. sitting down and eating together at the same time? And like, this is this is how it's supposed to be. This is normal. And it's been but great. In a strange way, maybe this, if my joke doesn't come through, that in two weeks we'll be back to the normal complaining. But maybe something of the sacrifice that we've all made in terms of our social lives and even our work lives, right? Maybe the lesson will be to treasure each other more, the stuff that we took for granted. Yeah. Just everyday family life. Yeah. And this will be fondly remembered for people who haven't suffered greatly. Yeah. As this kind of almost remember when we hunkered down during the war together and we made it through? That's that's to be treasured for the rest of our lives. We all, the whole world, went through this horrible illness together. Yeah. And yeah. came out the other side. It looks like we're coming out the other side. Yeah. No, you're right. It's a it's a little bit of a reset. Um, I want to ask you real quick uh, a couple other things about the the show. So, uh, speaking of San Francisco, the the Bush and Goosh, Bush Goosh, Bush Goosh. So Bush Goosh, people think it's it's uh, just one thing. It's actually Bush. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. I got that. I got, you got that. it. I'm I glad you got it. That's I, an old. Uh, that's an old writer's room t- expression. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you're able to include that in the episode. <laughs> it, it took a little thought whether to include it or not, but we thought it's such a cute expression for what it is. Yeah. <laughs> as, as you mentioned, it was it is an occupational hazard. So, by the way, travel the world. I've eaten the street food in Bangkok, right? I've eaten in Chiang Mai. I've eaten in, you know, Hong Kong. I've eaten strange things. I've eaten, you know, first time. San Francisco. Yeah. Go figure. Oh, no. <laughs> but indeed, occupational hazard. And then also speaking of your wife, I love the moment where she kind of gives you a little bit of shit because of all the things now you're doing for this show that she's tried to get you to do for years. It's like, now you're ziplining? Now? Right. now? <laughs> yes. Because here's, here's a very good reason. I'm on television. <laughs> and so there's a pressure to, you know, perform. Exactly. And there's a little money involved. Yeah. This is called content. Yeah. Monica's not uh, paying me to be uh, brave. Yeah. She's not filming it. It's not content. (laughs) But now that I've done it, she can reap the benefits of my newfound bravery. And next time I'll go with her. There you go. Lucky. She's so lucky to have such a hero as a husband. So what is next with the show? What is, what's the talk of going back? Is there any sort of conversation? Netflix, you got to talk to them. They got to, they going to tell you or not tell you. They keep everything close to the vest. You know, I do know what a privilege I've had already that they don't have shows. You know, they pick up 5% of their existing shows now because they're, they, the, the computer has said, the algorithm has said, they gain more subscribers with new shows than with new episodes of existing shows. Yeah. So I, I kind of understand that. But between you and me, I never want it to end. Well, you found... Would. Yeah, and, and you you already found uh, one new home. Maybe, you know, this is the, the traveling show. Every few years, another network, another who knows. 
By the way, Bourdain moved around, didn't he? That was yeah. three three separate yeah. networks, right? Yeah. You never know. Maybe if you probably just just take Sarandos on the next trip. Just <laughs> make it a buddy comedy. I know they like the show. I I, I do know that. They've been very sweet to me and yeah. very, very nice. So, you know, but who knows what the future holds? Yeah. Well, fingers crossed. Well, in the meantime, though, what uh, what is where is the first place you're you're uh, planning on going once uh, once you're able to get out of the house? I got to be honest. Uh, before all this recent news, I was looking at India because I've never been there. Yeah. But I think that's going to take a little time. Yeah. Uh, and we want to, you know, uh, send India the, the tools they need to get back. Right. I mean, that that's a that's a damn tragedy. What a strange thing. They were they were fine. You know, they were getting through it fine. And maybe they opened up too early and maybe they did it without the having the vaccine yet. Right. I think the vaccine's been key to everything. Yeah. You know, we got we got a lot of in California. We got a lot of people vaccinated. And before that happened, we were the worst. Right. And now we're the best in the country. Yeah. Yeah. Go figure. Hmm. I wonder what kind of like. <laughs> right. Like so somebody said for everybody for the, listening, yeah. get that vaccine. Get that vax. Yeah. Oh, Phil, another thing I want to ask you about is uh, somebody feed the people. Oh, great. Yeah. yeah. So that was something that started during the election because I thought, what the, what is this with people having to wait on long lines? That's not that's un-American to vote. Let's at least feed them. And I, I did a little research and I found that there's already a couple of organizations who are thinking the exact same way. So all I wanted to do was match the donations to the places that were doing it already, like World Central Kitchen and Pizza to the Poles. And so I opened this portal called Somebody Feed the People. And if you donate to World Central Kitchen, and I've kept this going now past the election because guess what? A lot of people need to eat, <laughs> not just the people waiting online. So I'm keeping it going. It's going to be my special little charity. Uh, and it's on brand. Yeah, it is Feed on brand. People. And it is always, uh, it's great to support folks like Jose Andre, who's doing such amazing work. I mean, he's, he's a hero, superhero. And it's got to be disheartening at the same time to see some states trying to outlaw feeding people waiting in line at the polls. Well, it's just, uh, you see what they're doing. Not to get political, but what the hell? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? What the hell indeed. What the hell indeed. Uh, well, Phil, That's, It's not political. Human. It's human. It's let's human. be more human. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, let's be good to each other. It's if any, again, like this past year is, has shown like, let's, let's just be good to each other. Um, we'll exactly like, right. See that it could all go away at any moment. I can't wait to see you in person and share a meal. Um, hopefully thank that will happen sooner you. rather than later. But, uh, Again, thank you for this show, which, you know, is, is such a just a nice gift for, for all of us to just enjoy and, and, and watch, uh, you know, and, and a nice sort of thing to, to watch and feel during these times. So thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to see you even on the Zoom. And uh, I hope to see you soon in person for real. That's Phil Rosenthal. Somebody Feed Phil is now streaming on Netflix.
And that's it for this bonus edition of Variety's Award Circuit Podcast. Drew Griffith edited this episode, and Michael Schneider is the producer. Be sure to subscribe to the Award Circuit Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you download podcasts. Also, head on over to Variety.com and click on the Award Circuit tab to find the latest Emmy predictions and key races, as well as your daily fix of news, analysis, and reviews. For Daniel Terciano and Jazz Tanke, I'm Michael Schneider, and we'll see you on the circuit. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.